come down with your breeches of deerskin and jackets of brown. With your red woolen caps and your moccasins, come to the gathering summons of trumpet and drum. Come down with your rifle at Grey Wolf and Fox, Alon in the shadow of primitive rocks. Let bare feet securely from pig pen and stall. Here's two legged game for your powder and ball. Then cheer, cheer the green mountain near. Then cheer, cheer the green mountain near. On the south came the Hessians, our land to police, and armed for the battle while panting for peace. On our east came the British. The red-coated band to hang up our leaders and eat up our land. Oh, all to the rescue! For Satan shall work. No gain for the legions of Hampshire and York. They claim our possessions, the pitiful names. The tribute we pay shall be prisons and graves. Cheer, cheer, the green mountain near. Then cheer. Themselves are our own fellow men who can handle the sword and the scythe and the pen. Hurrah for Vermont, for the land that we till must have some to defend her from valley and hill. Our bow is recorded, our banner unfurled. In the name of Vermont, we defy all the world. Then cheer, cheer, the green mountain. Cheer, cheer, the green mountain near. Then cheer, cheer, the green mountain near. Then cheer, cheer, the green mountain near. And welcome to Here We Stand. This is Kevin Anna Deagle's strong voice. This is the voice of the Republic of Canada and the Global Resistance Movement. It's September third. And we're back after a summer hiatus where we tended to play reruns, gathering for the coming week and the weeks beyond. Being broadcasting here for eight and a half years, and everything we're doing is almost summed up in that line from that beautiful song from the Green Mountain Boys in Vermont during the American Revolution, we owe no allegiance, we bow to no throne, our ruler is law and the law is our own. Because those words from the American Revolution are our words. They sum up the spirit and the substance of all of us who are free, self-governing people, who are breaking the chains of our mental and spiritual captivity to that murderous thing they sometimes call civilization. Because the opposite of our liberation is tyranny. We're experiencing it every day, the rule of the few over the many, where war and mass murder, genocide and despair are the way of things. But the spark of liberty still glows in the hearts of we, we happy few, we band of brothers and sisters who have been through the fire and have come out the other end. We've learned how to fight and win against a murderous system. Now, of course, talk is easy. Uh, those who act on their words usually don't last long or live under the gun, so we often automatically tend to prefer chatter to action. 
But nevertheless, words can sometimes cause us to act. So to kick off the show today, here are some aphorisms from yours truly. It being a Sunday, I always started my sermons when I was a clergyman with a joke, which the parishioners often didn't appreciate because, after all, worship is a serious matter, especially the Presbyterian. But anyway, um, here's a joke I would sometimes hit him with. Two goldfish are in a bowl talking. And one goldfish says to another, of course there's a God, man. Who do you think changes the water? Yeah, well, I used to get funny stares from people when I said that one. But carrying on with Kev's aphorisms for the day, God talk is for rumor mongers because, hell, nobody really knows, right? Christianity, and to paraphrase Napoleon, Christianity is what stops the poor from killing the rich. And I would add, but unfortunately it's not reciprocal, the meek shall inherit the shit. And don't forget that. People who want everything, and this is going out to Canadians who love talking about keeping things positive. People who want everything positive forget that you can't have a live current without the negative. Or why are we afraid of our own shadow? Because tragedy, here's another aphorism, tragedy is just a laugh waiting to happen. So true. Cowards make a virtue of their own ass. Must be protected at all costs. Hmm? And here's one going to my brother Bill, the retired biotech CEO living off the blood of millions. Bill, you can't make a living by making a killing. Also, nothing beats working like not working. Voting only encourages them. Whoever's number one got there by waiting in number two and one of my favorite, your best teacher is your last mistake. Well, I mentioned aphorisms because it was a common practice of Jesus. And it's interesting when you look at the guy and what little is known about him historically. It was an oral culture, so he would say stuff and people would repeat it. They're called aphorisms, little descriptions like what Jesus heard. And these aphorisms like... The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. Okay, that would circulate all over the place. Then it got written down and got turned into the cumbersome scriptures and that, which there are a lot of ads on, add-ons and editorialization, all sorts of stuff the church did. But the original ideas are encompassed in an aphorism, an idea. And I ended on the one, your best teachers are last mistake, because it's very true. It's how we learn all the time. So Kicking off on that note, I want to ask a simple question. Why are we here today? Why are we kicking off the fall with a new campaign of what we call banishment and reclamation? We all know our purpose is to reclaim the world and ourselves to our natural state of equality and love. That's always been our aim on Here We Stand for over a half years. And you can follow that, by the way, bbsradio.com slash herewestand, murderbydecree.com, republicofcanata.org. We espouse not only a new future for all of us, but we're actively training people to establish it. We're one of the voices and arms of the global resistance movement of sovereign common law republic that is going up against the corporatocracy. That battle begins first in our own minds and hearts and souls. Well, this coming week and beyond it, our small but determined forces in nine countries are doing just that. We're armed with common law and indigenous warrants, and we banish the genocidal churches and corporations from the land and are actively reclaiming their properties as reparations for centuries of mass murder. That includes the Church of Rome, the Church of England, and in Canada as well, the United Church of Canada, that ran the death camps and the ma created the mass graves that everyone is now denying. 60,000 more dead children don't lie, but 
squelching their memory helps keep the lie alive. And that's what we're constantly countering these days. One of the ways we're doing it, in Canada alone, this last year, 11 different Roman Catholic churches were burned to the ground by Native people. And another dozen have been reclaimed and occupied by elders of the Cree, the Ojibwe, the Mohawk, Squamish, and Chilcotin people. And for those of you who don't know, that's crossing the entire country. Well, like the Mapuche people of Chile, the indigenous people there, uh, we've targeted those Roman Catholic churches because the prime crime scenes where children are regularly raped, trafficked, and killed. But as well, we're saying to the Anglican and United Churches, your time is over. You murdered 60,000 children, and you still traffic them. And so you have to be gone from our communities. You no, no longer have the right to operate in them. Now, we're going beyond simple declarations to action. We're saying the same thing to city governments all over the world, but especially in Canada. For example, there's a group going to the Vancouver City Council on September 12th at the regular meeting. They've got a set of demands. Uh, really uh, more than a petition, we're not really asking for something. We're declaring that the city government has to cancel all tax exemptions and licensing for these genocidal churches operating anywhere in Vancouver. And then in the city, there's 279 Catholic, Anglican, and United churches. And we're saying you don't have the right to give them some licensing because they're convicted and self-admitted genocidal bodies. And there will be a demand on the Vancouver City Council that they nullify those. And if they're not going to nullify them, explain why should they then shouldn't be charged with being accessories to crimes against humanity. And we'll remember at the next election. You can do that everywhere. I know our sisters, Georgina Cameron in Australia, has done the same thing the Sid, uh, to the Sydney City Council. And look, expect resistance. You're going to get it. But that's how anything new starts, through major pushback. We counter that with our own persistence and remembering all those dead children and the ones who are going to die tomorrow if we don't act. To the police, we say the same thing. You have an obligation to protect those of us who are physically reclaiming those church buildings. For we're enforcing the law, the law internationally and locally, that says self-admitted and convicted genocidal bodies have lost the right to operate and gather funds. Those funds and all their wealth can now lawfully be seized by all the people. Now, we've done it. As I've said before in the show, in March 2008, I was made the legal agent of traditional Squamish CM Capilano in Vancouver. Gave me the legal right of entry. He filed it in the B.C. Supreme Court, and it was really hilarious using this thing. I would take the court documents showing that I had the legal right of entry into these churches to reclaim them. And the cops would always show up. I'd show it to them. They'd always back off. That's how we successfully occupied those churches in 2007 and 8, which forced this whole thing into the open, forced the pseudo-apology, forced the cover-up that's continuing. So we're going to be doing the same thing, people all over the world, on Sunday, September 10th, Monday, September 11th, and beyond. We'll be holding a press conference announcing that. And similar actions will be held in Australia, Ireland, America, all over the world where we're part of our people that are part of our sovereign Kamala Republic Movement, the Republic Alliance. So to get on board with that, to write and find out more, write to us, Republic National Council at ProtonMail.com, and you can learn a lot more of what's happening on the ground. Because look, friends, this is a battle to the death. It's one you can't avoid. You may ignore the thing we fight, but it's not going to ignore you, and one day it's going to come from you if it hasn't already. So you need to take a stand now while you still can. Personally, I've lost a lot of friends and family in this battle. 
But in the course of that, looking back, I've become stronger and more devoted from my loss and by remembering those of us who have given their lives for the rest of us. And that's another part of our campaign that's coming up this week. We are reconvening the West Coast Common Law Court of Justice in Vancouver. And the first case involves the murder of three of our friends and Indigenous fighters, Harriet Nahani, William Coombs, and Johnny Bingo Dawson. The murder of those three people, the naming of those who caused it and facilitated it. We'll be naming those names and addresses. We'll be indicting and putting on trial people like RCMP Inspector Peter Montague, who arranged the murder of those three friends. And who, after the three of them and a lot of us had done the occupations of those churches in downtown Vancouver, we'll be, re- we'll be actually convening the trial on the very doorsteps of those killers and who those, those who run those killers. So it'll be a great theatrical event. And like I say, you can duplicate that wherever you are in the world. Just read murderbydecree.com for all of that. And Republic National Council at protonmail.com to get on board. Now, uh, an anecdote, anecdote. I remember back in December 1995, after in the process of me being thrown out of the United Church for exposing these things, I first met Harriet Nahani. We held a protest at the United Church office in Kitsilano in, in the suburbs of Vancouver. And Harriet heard about our protest, uh, you know, that was protesting my unceremonial eviction from the United Church. She heard about it and came down, and she spoke to a reporter there. She said, I saw a little girl named Maisie Shaw kicked to her death and at the Alberni Residential School. That's the first time the murder of a child was ever reported in, the bank, in any news media in Canada, really anywhere in the world. And after that, the shit hit the fan. Not only did they move against both of us, the church and the government and the RCMP, but it really started that whole campaign. And I went to Harriet's house after that. I remember sitting around having tea with her, and she described to me watching as children were routinely starved to death and beaten to death at the United Church death camp in Port Alberni, and then buried in the hills behind the camp. She used to take part in those burials. She said to me, very important words, she said, only three kind of people came out of that hellhole. They were the slaves, the sellouts, and the dead. Those were only your choices. Slaves, sellouts, or the dead. And so I asked her, well, which one were you? And she said, I was a slave. I was a victim for a long time, but now I'm a threat. And I always remember that because becoming a threat, that was her answer to the madness and her previous slavery. It's how she reclaimed herself. She became and remained a threat to those killers to her last breath. She died when she was arrested, again, targeted, after she took part in a protest blocking a highway that was running right through her territory in North Vancouver. And Judge Brenda Brown, who was part of the whole cover-up, the, the death, residential school death camps, she sentenced to Harriet a month in Surrey Remand Prison, which is the oldest and least heated prison in Greater Vancouver. Uh, Harriet was in Surrey Remand Prison in February 2007 died after coming out of, quote, lung cancer after only three weeks. Usual way to get rid of a well, especially a Native person. But to the day she died, she kept telling the truth of what she experienced, and that's what we all need to do, because our own experience are our best teachers. You live within the psychotic and murderous culture for very long, and you have to become as dissociated as it is. We're dissociated not only from our own selves and from nature and from each other. We're dissociated from our ability to take action and break our own mental and physical chains in practice. 
you know, and I remember one of the thick books I, in my books, I love to quote from, um, and you can see all my books, murderbydecree.com or Amazon. The uh, whistleblower manual, how to survive these things. One of the things I write is the power of a truth teller like Harriet, who endures this ordeal, ordeal and transforms from a victim into a warrior, is that they finally know themselves to be part of a bigger and unseen army that's waged an unending war against tyranny since mankind's inception. It's a spiritual army, but one very rooted in worldly realities on our human struggles. And like an army, it operates according to the rules of war. Now, we always love to quote the art of war because it's almost written for small groups taking on bigger, seemingly unbeatable enemies. Written by General Sun Tzu 3,000 years ago. And here are three basic things to keep in mind, folks, when we undertake this battle, as I hope you will this coming week with us. Wars are won only when a unified leadership transforms random events into controlled outcomes by purposely shaping such events. The clarity and will of the commander of those leading these battles forms the ground of the entire army. And such clarity comes from honesty and realism. An unshakable will to pursue victory using every opportunity is the one essential quality of a commander, and it overcomes every setback and unforeseen event. So I'm speaking that to those of you, that remnant, those few of you out there who are taking responsibility. Leaders are those who own themselves. That's, in fact, our Métis people in Winnipeg, um, mixed blood, Cree and Scots-Irish. We have a word for ourselves. It's called the Otipemswak, the people who own themselves. And that is describing those of us who don't look to anybody else. We don't look to events. We don't worry about what the bad guys are, quote, doing to us. We ignore them. We look to ourselves, and we are the commanders of this movement. And if we're not united, the movement doesn't happen. We have to be leading by example all the time. So that's essential for those listening. Secondly, one skilled in battle summons one's enemy and is not summoned by them. One, one skilled in battle forms the ground of war, and then the enemy must follow. We offer and the enemy must take. Now that's very important. You establish the terrain of battle from the very beginning. You don't let them define the issue in the narrative, which people do all the time. You know, you see burning trees in Hawaii, and so everyone's talking about the, the fires in Hawaii. You know, uh, there's some news event about Trump or DeSantis or some other politician. Everyone's talking about them. No, that's what slaves do. They're always thinking about what their masters are doing. You think now about what you are going to do next. You have to be invisible and unfathomable to your enemy and always unpredictable and then strike from out of the darkness. And second, thirdly, very important. Never confront, never, never, never confront the enemy in their strength, but only at their point of weakness. That's what we did on Sunday mornings. We didn't protest outside Parliament or the church offices. That's what they expected. That's what they're always ready for. We went into their holy of holies or unholy of unholies. Their Sunday services, just like Georgina, our sister, did in Australia, single-handedly and confronted them in their weakness. Why are churches weak in there? Well... It's where the money is, collection plates. It's where the people, are, their, their flock are gathered. It's where we can reach them. They're vulnerable. Their public image on their money. That's where we hit. In all engagements, aim at seizing quickly whatever the enemy holds dear. And then their strength and plans and, and power are rendered useless, and they have to stop and respond on your terms. Case in point, 
20 years ago, we were the only ones saying genocide happened in Indian death camps, they call residential schools. Now everyone's saying it. Now the Pope's admitted it. Jorge Bergoglio, Bishop of Rome, he admitted it. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau admitted it, the G word. Now, of course, they weren't arrested on the spot, as they should have been under international law, because they run the system. But nevertheless, we force those words into their mouths because we define the narrative. Only two dozen of us did that. We didn't have a big army, except the unseen army of all those children standing behind us. You can, it's not a matter of numbers. It's a matter of holding the high ground and defining the terms and the terrain of battle. Likewise, whatever you love makes you vulnerable and prone to manipulation. Therefore, prepare yourself always to relinquish it. That's a hard one. But it's taken from us. Often family and friends and the ones we love are the first to be targeted. But that only makes us stronger if we're serious about this battle. So I wanted to share that with you because today on the show, what we want to do is help you, especially in the second part of the show where we're going to go over the case and talk more about some of these issues. Um, We're going to help you make a transition from being someone raised in slavery and having all the impulses of a slave to someone who becomes a threat, like Harriet became. And if you're worried about what happened to you or what's happened to you in your life, nothing, I assure you, nothing compares to what happened to Harriet Nahani, the bailed. They targeted and raped and tortured her every day because she was the daughter of a spiritual elder. And they targeted people like her and William Coombs because they were spirit dancers. They held on to the sacred knowledge. And yet she survived and fought for many years at our side until they killed her. But she hasn't been killed. Her spirit lives on in each one of us who are devoted in this. Today we're going to be describing what we're going to be doing as part of that, and especially in the part I haven't mentioned much, which is those that West Coast Common Law Court case, the case against these killers. We're going to describe some of that. But also we're going to talk about the judgment involved in this. And I want you to keep that word in mind, judgment. Because... Too often, people who haven't reclaimed themselves always talk about things happening to them by all these bad guys. I mean, we're all innocent, right, folks? We haven't done anything wrong. Okay, we paid for the taxes of these death camps, and we looked the other way, and we not only when it was happening, but when our campaign started, and there was I was often the only white guy at these actions. Where were all of you? Well, you were all doing what you were trained to do, turn the other way. Be complicit. But now a lot of you are upset that it's blowing back on you too. And now you're being targeted. You know, the uh, passes you needed to get off a reservation is like today's vaccine passport. That's been the law in Canada since 1874, folks. But now that it's blowing back to you, on you, you have a chance to change. You can see that we can't escape the consequences of who we are as a people and what we've done to others. And when those consequences blow back on us, it's recognizing that it's simply the beast that we have unleashed on so many others for so long come home to eat its own master. And that's what's going on. Because the COVID police state is based on centuries of Christian genocide and specifically on the statutes of the Indian Act. Like I mentioned, the, the pass, the mandatory shots, which no native on reservation can refuse if they go to jail. That judgment on us is a necessary one. It's inescapable, but necessary because it's how we break our chains of complicity. It's how the scales from our, fall from our eyes and our hearts and our minds. And so our banishment and reclamation campaign starting up this week isn't only against the obvious killers of church and state and corporatocracy. It's really a banishment of ourselves from who we were and are. 
Because for us to stand under such a historic judgment, that's a spiritual action. It's a spiritual exorcism, really, a banishment of the dead thing that we've all served in our dissociated condition. It's a banishment of our own captivity. And that inner and outer exorcism, it begins by remembering the fallen ones and the lessons they've given us so we can carry on the fight. But we can't carry on the fight until we've renounced our association with our own genocidal culture and our own slavery. Now, of course, that's an easy thing to say, often seemingly impossible to do, but we have no other option. And before the break, and I want to just take a break and listen to our good friend George Carlin, who talks about euphemisms and how false words not only delude us, but imprison us. And that's especially true of people in Canada who love to use words like abuse rather than torture and murder when it comes to their own native victims. But that could be said about everyone, of course, but anywhere in the world. But it's that euphemism, the reclaiming of our language, that's such a revolutionary act. And we're going to take a break in a minute and listen to George Carlin talk about that. Very edifying. But when we come back, we're going to be talking about a remembrance of two very important things. This September 6th, this Wednesday, is the first anniversary of the massacre of 10 Cree natives in Saskatchewan in order to get diamonds. The Rio Tinto Corporation tied to the British crown and Charlie Boy sitting there on that fake throne in London. That happened a year ago, and we're going to talk about that. And also a very important event for me, 50 years ago on September 11th, the first 9-11, the government of Salvador Allende in Chile was overthrown in a CIA-backed military coup, American-controlled coup, because Allende had the temerity to nationalize and try to share the wealth with his own people, nationalize the companies that were backing the Nixon administration. And 50 years ago, I remember when that happened, it opened my eyes as a young boy when I was 17. I began to meet the veterans of that coup. They came to Vancouver in droves. And they told me firsthand what it was like to try to make a revolution on the ground, to take the land back for the peasants, to take the, all the workplaces back for the people who worked in them. And one of them said to me, we learned that you can't make a revolution halfway because then you just merely dig your own grave. And that event made me an implacable enemy of a system that can reach out and destroy thousands of people in a distant land in order to protect the mega profits of a few men. It's a sick system, the same one that's responsible for everything happening to us now and to our brothers and sisters in those mass graves of children. So I'm remembering those dates. We're going to talk more about that when I come back. But for now, let's take a break and listen to our brother George Carlin. It's worse with every generation. For some reason, it just keeps getting worse. I'll give you an example of that. There's a condition in combat. Most people know about it. It's when a fighting person's nervous system has been stressed to its absolute peak and maximum. Can't take any more input. The nervous system has either snapped or is about to snap. In the First World War, that condition was called shell shock. Simple, honest, direct language, two syllables, shell shock. Almost sounds like the guns themselves. That was 70 years ago. Then a whole generation went by and the Second World War came along and we, the very same combat condition was called battle fatigue. Four syllables now, takes a little longer to say, doesn't seem to hurt as much. Fatigue is a nicer word than shock, shell shock battle fatigue. 
Then we had the war in Korea in 1950. Madison Avenue was riding high by that time. And the very same combat condition was called operational exhaustion. <laughs> hey, we're up to eight syllables now. And the humanity has been squeezed completely out of the phrase. It's totally sterile now. Operational exhaustion. Sounds like something that might happen to your car. Then, of course, came the war in Vietnam, which has only been over for about 16 or 17 years. And thanks to the lies and deceit surrounding that war, I guess it's no surprise that the very same condition was called post-traumatic stress disorder. Still eight syllables, but we've added a hyphen. And the pain is completely buried under jargon. Post-traumatic stress disorder. I'll bet you, if we'd have still been calling it shell shock, some of those Vietnam veterans might have gotten the attention they needed at the time. I'll bet you that. I'll bet you that. But it didn't happen. And one of the reasons, one of the reasons is because we were using that soft language, that language that takes the life out of life. And it is a function of time. It does keep getting worse. Give you another example. Sometime during my life, sometime during my life, toilet paper became bathroom tissue. I wasn't notified of this. No one asked me if I agreed with it. It just happened. Toilet paper became bathroom tissue. Sneakers became running shoes. False teeth became dental appliances. Medicine became medication. Information became directory assistance. The dump became the landfill. Car crashes became automobile accidents. Partly cloudy became partly sunny. Motels became motor lodges. House trailers became mobile homes. Used cars became previously owned transportation. <laughs> room service became guest room dining. And constipation became occasional irregularity. <laughs> when I was a little kid, if I got sick, they wanted me to go to the hospital and see the doctor. Now they want me to go to a health maintenance organization. Or a wellness center to consult a health care delivery professional. Poor people used to live in slums. Now the economically disadvantaged occupy substandard housing in the inner cities. And they're broke. They're broke. They don't have a negative cash flow position. They're fucking broke. Because a lot of them were fired. You know, fired, management wanted to curtail redundancies in the human resources area. So many people are no longer viable members of the workforce. Smug, greedy, well-fed white people have invented a language to conceal their sins. It's as simple as that. The CIA doesn't kill anybody anymore. They neutralize people. <laughs> or they depopulate the area. The government doesn't lie and engages in disinformation. The Pentagon actually measures nuclear radiation in something they call sunshine units. Israeli murderers are called commandos. Arab commandos are called terrorists. Contra killers are called freedom fighters. Well, if crime fighters fight crime and firefighters fight fire, what do freedom fighters fight? They never mention that part of it to us, do they? Never mention that part of it.
And some of this stuff is just silly. We know, we all know that. Like on the airlines, they say they want to pre-board. Well, what the hell is pre-board? What does that mean? To get on before you get on? They say they're going to pre-board those passengers in need of special assistance. Cripples! Simple, honest, direct language. There's no shame attached to the word cripple that I can find in any dictionary. No shame attached to it. In fact, it's a word used in Bible translations. Jesus healed the cripples. Doesn't take seven words to describe that condition. But we don't have any cripples in this country anymore. We have the physically challenged. Is that a grotesque enough evasion for you? How about differently abled? I've heard them call that differently abled. You can't even call these people handicapped anymore. They'll say, we're not handicapped, we're handicapable. <laughs> these poor people have been bullshitted by the system into believing that if you change the name of the condition, somehow you'll change the condition. Well, hey, cousin, <laughs> doesn't happen. Doesn't happen. We have no more deaf people in this country, hearing impaired. No one's blind anymore, partially sighted or visually impaired. We have no more stupid people. Everybody has a learning disorder. <laughs> or he's minimally exceptional. How would you like to be told that about your child? He's minimally exceptional. Oh, thank God for that. <laughs> Psychologists actually have started calling ugly people those with severe appearance deficits. It's getting so bad that any day now I expect to hear a rape victim referred to as an unwilling sperm recipient. And we have no more old people in this country. No more old people. We shipped them all away and we brought in these Senior citizens. Isn't that a typically American 20th century phrase? Bloodless, lifeless. No pulse in one of them. A senior citizen. But I've accepted that one. I've come to terms with it. I know it's here to stay. We'll never get rid of it. That's what they're going to be called, so I'll relax on that. But the one I do resist, the one I keep resisting, is when they look at an old guy and they'll say, Look at him, Dan. He's 90 years young. Imagine the fear of aging that reveals. To not even be able to use the word old to describe someone. To have to use an antonym. And fear of aging is natural. It's universal, isn't it? We all have that. No one wants to get old. No one wants to die. But we do. So we bullshit ourselves. <laughs> I started bullshitting myself when I got to my 40s. As soon as I was in my 40s, I'd look in the mirror and I'd say, Well, I, I guess I'm getting older. Older sounds a little better than old, doesn't it? Sounds like it might even last a little longer. <laughs> Bullshit, I'm getting old. And it's okay, because thanks to our fear of death in this country, I won't have to die. I'll pass away. <laughs> Or I'll expire like a magazine subscription. <laughs> that happens in the hospital, they'll call it a terminal episode. The insurance company will refer to it as negative patient care outcome. And if it's the result of malpractice, they'll say it was a therapeutic misadventure. I'm telling you, some of this language makes me want to vomit. Well, maybe not vomit. 
makes me want to engage in an involuntary personal protein spill. Oh, beautiful. And how true, right, folks? You know, the thing came to mind when you talked about, you know, this bullshit language and how it's used everywhere. You can't engage at any level of a, quote, official society and not have your head messed around by false language because it's all designed to cover crime and evil, or as he put it, cover our sins, right? Uh, best example I had of that, or a recent one that's jogging around in my mind, is first, quote, healing circle we went to in the downtown east side after I lost my kids and was living in destitution after being tossed up by the church. This was in early 96. And we just began our campaign. Harriet and I were began to hold rallies of survivors and that, but we got invited down to uh, Carnegie Center, Manny Hastings, kind of the community center in the downtown part of Vancouver. 30,000 Native people live in that area, and it, almost all of them were survivors. So they started coming to these things. And the government that did the crime set up what they called healing circles. Well, the only one who he- – nobody heals out of this stuff, and that's it's known to anybody who's been through this. You don't heal. That's the word imposed on people by the system that did it. And the assumption in there is that if you don't try to heal, you're the problem, not us. So it's always putting the blame back on the victim. Um, but I remember sitting in one of these first circles, and we renamed them. I said, like, you can need a new name for this. So we, they just called them talking circles because that's what they're doing. And as usual, nobody ever shares their worst stuff right away. They always waited for somebody else. But they, as soon as people began talking, they began to use the language of their torturers. And that is, I was abused. And I said, after a while, I said, what does that mean? And they wouldn't say. They used the, you know, the way the, peop- the system uses abuse to hide. People do the same who've been through it. They use the same word to hide from looking at it or to have to talk about it. But finally, a woman said, well, they tortured me in there. They held me down and raped me and tortured me with electricity. She was talking about the Catholic death camp in Mission, B.C. And they had an Indian hospital there, too, a clinic where they would test their drugs on kids and kill them and mass graves up back, a whole gamut of horrors. So she said, they tortured me. And there was a shock that went around the circle. People went, yeah, it was torture. And after that, I said, use your words. Because I remember that quote from George Orwell when he talked about, like in 1984, mind control and double think and all that. How do the few not only control the many, but control their minds using false words? And Orwell said, there's nothing more difficult than saying what we see in our own words, using our own language. And that's what we have to do all the time. Now, I'm, I'm not just mean those shattered Native folks in that circle, who, by the way, were the ones who led the church occupations with us. The ones who had nothing, like it says in the Bible, those with nothing will overturn the mighty and throw them from their thrones. That's, in fact, what they did. It was people like that who took part in the church occupations. Everybody else were too scared. Anyone with anything to lose, all the middle-class white people, they stayed away like they still do. But it was those homeless Native folks who were able to reclaim their own language. And that's that word again, reclaim. You've got to reclaim your own mind before you can reclaim these genocidal churches and the land they've stolen and their wealth. So one of those uh, lessons we took out of that is that's true about any of us. We have to know not only our own real history, but is what we're saying and thinking even our own reality or is it somebody else's reality? Remember when I was um, doing, before I got tossed out of the United Church, I did a stint in Toronto at a place called Fred Victor Mission. 
and uh, kind of a, a prelude to what happened in Port Alberni because I found out that the United Church was laundering money, uh, over a million dollars laundering money. The staff were dealing drugs, doing prostitution. I mean, the whole bit. And I made the naive mistake of reporting it, and the police and top church officials told me to back off. And anyway, that was Fred Victor Mission. Still in operation, of course. Um, anyway, um, I remember, oh my God, now I've forgotten my thought. Oh, well, okay. <laughs> that's the trouble with getting old. I'm 67 now, folks, and uh, it will come back to me. Uh, the um, What I was talking about is too bad we're not in a conversation. That's why you need a conversation uh, all the time, because one of you listening could say, Kev, you were talking about this and would remind me. So anyway, um, although I don't want to pretend that I'm not on the ball here because it's it's funny. Um, one of the meetings I had the other day, this Native woman looked at me and she said, you know, Kev, you've got more together than somebody I know who's 20 because you've just stayed at it and you've learned and you haven't given up and that's why you're wise about these things. I said, yeah, it's not because I'm special. It's because I just didn't give up and you learn. Problem is people give up too soon and they don't learn the lessons and they can't apply them. So stay at it. That's my advice to all of you listening. Um, anyway, hopefully we'll come back. Hopefully the memory will float back to me about why I mentioned uh, the Toronto ministry. But I think it had to do with the services I was running of a homeless, very similar to what went on in Vancouver and Port Alberni and after, when we used our own language to look at what, what happens. Now, that brings us to what I mentioned before the show uh, bef- uh, took, uh, took its break. Before we heard George Carlin, I was talking about these two events. The massacre that occurred in eastern Saskatchewan, September 2022. And what happened in a nutshell, and you can go to, actually, if you go to murderbydecree.com, to the posting December 1st, 2022. It's called uh, Mass Murder Cover-Up and Payoffs, Following the Big Money Behind the Cree Nation Massacre. And let me just read it to you. The scenario is a familiar one, a stage of conspicuous killing, kill the killers, and buy everyone's silence. So that's what happened at the behest of Rio Tinto, who discovered diamonds on the lands of the Cree people of eastern Saskatchewan. It all started last September 4th, 2022, when 10 members of the James Smith Cree Nation were found stabbed to death. One man was swiftly named by the police as the lone killer, Miles Sanderson, who was arrested by the Mounties on September 7th. But then Miles conveniently died while in RCMP custody, and the other suspect, Miles' brother and accomplice Damien, was also found dead in a nearby field. Well, of this double death of both suspects wasn't strange enough, a veil of official silence quickly descended on the killings. Band members were muzzled, and a media blackout was imposed by the state-funded band counselors. And Saskatchewan's chief coroner, Clive Weekill, announced that the investigative jury would consist only of hand-picked band council members, even though that kind of jury stacking is forbidden under the law. Well, it turned out as part of a bigger story having to do with the fact that six of the ten people killed that night were the relatives of a guy called Wally Burns, who was the one band councillor at the James Smith Cree Reservation who opposed Rio Tinto's application to mine on their land. Then, Soon after that, six of his relatives are killed. Obviously, by professional, you don't break into 10 homes and kill people quickly with a knife and in silence and not be a professional. So six of his 10 relatives are killed when he refuses 
to endorse the diamond mining. And soon after that, of course, he changes his vote and the diamond mines go ahead. Well, what was interesting, what occurred was Justin Trudeau and Mary Simon, the governor general, and the uh, Archbishop of Canterbury that already convicted genocidal maniac called Justin Welby, they all show up at the Cree Reservation and hand to the bank council $62.5 million. That's called hush money because Rio Tinto was owned by the British Crown and its Chinese backers. And they have uncovered over $3 billion in diamonds on Cree land. So when you kill people in plain sight like that, when it's so blatantly a takedown aimed at the one op- opponent on the reservation, that's obviously a signal to everybody saying, look what we can do, folks. Don't stop further things that we're going to be doing. And I mentioned that, too, because that example, the anniversary of that on Wednesday, September 6th, we can't remember, we can't forget those incidents because they're an example of now of how the system operates. And it's not a problem of lack of evidence. It's all there in front of us. But we automatically turn away, just like we use false language all the time, the language of the oppressor. Now, the second example that I mentioned, the thing we had to remember, was that military coup in Chile. And one of the things that inspired me to do was write a book called Recovering the Dream. It's the most recent book. And it's very important to forget about the political labels and talk about the substance of our vision. Don't use the rhetoric, the isms. Okay, just talk about the reality of what, what kind of world we want. The kind of world we want is one where, no, a few people don't own everything. That the three axioms of nature is creation is given to all of us to share equally. No one has any authority over anyone else. And we're meant to share the world in peace and protect Mother Nature and each other. Three basic axioms of natural law. That's the basis of common law and all law. So no, no few individuals have the right to accumulate billions of dollars and shut out millions of the rest of us. Now, people can call that kind of system of of communalism whatever you like. And, of course, the rich who control the media are always trying to brainwash you that that system of cooperation, whether you call it socialism, communism, whatever, they train everyone to be so afraid of those words when, in fact, the substance behind the words is exactly what our natural God-given reality needs to go back to because it was given to us naturally that way. Things are automatically placed in common. We're just going back to the natural law. No, we don't want big government. No, we don't want big corporations. We want the people to own the land cooperatively and collectively and all the wealth. And that's really the vision behind everything we do. So I want you to all keep that in mind when we're doing all of these things because, you know, it's one of the things that keeps me going at age 67, having lost everything in my life, and I mean everything, all my family, all my friends, my children, everything, people who all stay away from now because they know it's dangerous to be associated with what we're doing, at least dangerous to their old life, not to them, not to their real substance, but it's dangerous to that old life, that complicit life they're so addicted to. And one of the things that keeps me going in that is the fact that I can look back 50 years and said, that young boy standing outside at the first demonstration at the U.S. consulate in September 1973, I I felt a power there and a presence with people that no love, no other achievement in the world can ever duplicate because it was people taking action for each other and for strangers against the evil, but to create a better world. That vision they had in Chile, that the wealthy of the world tried to crush, which you can never crush because it's exactly what Jesus preached about. And that vision and that spirit has kept me going through every bad moment. And it was really great back then 
um, meeting people in the 1970s because I would meet these folks who were genuine revolutionaries who had been through the Depression, who had fought, who had been facing blacklisting and being beaten up and jailed, and they were the same way. Uh, you know, they kept going because they had the vision that sustains us when everything else is taken from us. And that's what I remember 50 years ago, and I celebrated now. Um, you know, having been a survivor, because we survivors have a responsibility to pass on the message, to not let the dead be forgotten, to say, no, the evil is not any better now just because a bit of words of apology and money have been circulated. If anything, that's a way to cover the evil so it can continue tomorrow. And we're not going to let that happen. So that leads us to the latter part of the show. And of course, I've run out of time. We've only got about six minutes left. So I want to flag this for the next show because the next show is going to be on the day before. Actually, the day of these church actions, but the day or two before we go to the different city councils and present these demands to them that if you don't cancel these tax exemptions and, and licensing privileges to the Catholic, Anglican, the United Churches, you are complicit in a crime and we will bring sanctions against you, the elected officials. In other words, you know, taking action when the government doesn't. And of course, the government's complicit in this, so they're never going to. But the point is we can embarrass them and expose them just the way we did the churches. That's why two dozen of us and how two dozen of us forced out the truth. So next week and in the weeks beyond, we're going to be looking at the docket cases, the, the two cases that the West Coast Common Law Court of Justice is going to be going into in detail, naming the names and the details of how it all happened. The murder of Harriet Mahoney, William Coombs, who saw Queen Elizabeth take those children, and who was killed, as we have evidence now from insiders in the security retinue around the so-called royal family. We know that one of these guys said that Charles Windsor, present so-called and false King of England, put the kill order out on William Coombs just before he died. And we're going to be going into that. And Johnny Bingo Dawson, the third victim, who was took part, all of them took part in these church occupations, and they were systematically targeted by the RCMP and the Vancouver Police Department. We're going to bring all that out in the first case on the docket. The second case is, we call it the anatomy of a takedown. How, by targeting me and others in the leadership of this position, of this whole movement, how they attempted to cut off the head. And it worked for a long time. When you target the official symbol of that movement, the rest scatter, and that has happened for all, but now there's a resumption of the struggle and it didn't work. But we want to look into the details of how they do that uh, in these court cases as not only means to convict these people and seize their property and assets, but to learn a lesson from how to stop these people in the future. These are priceless lessons that we bought with our blood and suffering, and so we're passing them on, and I am passing them on to you today. It's a priceless heritage for you to pass on as well. And the other thing we wanted to do too is that I didn't get to today, but I want to focus on in the weeks ahead on our show and on all the work we do, and that's judgment. The I remember there's a, a quote from um, Psalm 115, I think it said, and it's the part about you know condemning the people for worshiping idols. And there's a passage in there that says, whoever worships or relies on idols shall become as dead as they. And you look around and you see that going on around us. And, you know, we're living in a dead zone where people have surrendered their identity and even their minds to this machine. Just look at an iPad-captivated young population, you'll know what I mean. Well, if we're going to end that, we have to break the ties that bind us to that system. And I remember one of my favorite quotes from Jesus when he said, I come not to bring peace but a sword. 
And that word sword, gladius, in Greek, that was translated, it's the, where we get the word gladiator from, it's the sword that Roman soldiers would use to strike up under the enemy and literally disembowel them. That's the word Jesus uses for bringing a sword of division. He's going to disembowel evil, literally. But that sword runs first through us. That's the point. Spiritually, the sword separates ourselves from our old self and creates a new self. That separation has to cut through ourselves first if it's to cut through the world and and cut off these false evil institutions. So that's what I'm going to leave you with today. Take it or leave it. And you can follow all of us at murderbydecree.com, Republic of Kanata, K-A-N-A-T-A, republicofkanata.org. Write to us, Republic National Council at protonmail.com, or me personally, Kevin Annett, angelfire101 at protonmail.com, and get on board with this, because time is a wasting, folks. And um, I also want to uh, just close by uh, reminding folks that all of the works, everything we've done is archived thoroughly. And you can access that initially at murderbydecree.com, but all of the proof is there. It's been pretty much wiped off the internet in a lot of places, but we are the living embodiment of that. So of those of you who are serious about learning more about this and carrying on, please contact me. And I'll be doing throughout the fall and into the new year. We'll, I'm, I plan to do a whole series of seminars, training workshops with people. Um, in colleges all over the countries that uh, our movement extends into. We're going to be doing that online, but most importantly, face-to-face. So please, again, write to me, angelfire101 at protonmail.com. Get my recent two books, Crimes Against Humanity in Canada, The Evidence, which sums up these docket uh, cases that I've described, and Recovering the Dream. Both of them you can get on Amazon. Now, we're going to close with one of our favorite songs, Bella Ciao. This was from the time of the Italian resistance, after um, World, or during and after World War II, and um, it's self-explanatory. And also a final quote from our friend Percy Shelley, the poet, who wrote these words after the 1819 Peterloo Massacre in Manchester, England, when working people who were fighting for the vote were wrote, written down. And Shelley wrote, Rise like lions after slumber in unvanquishable number. Shake your chains to earth like dew which in sleep had fallen on you. Ye are many, they are few. I thank you, folks. Stay strong, stay clear. We'll be back next week. i
You see me, I may be smiling, Bella Ciao. 